The church's one foundation indeed is Jesus Christ, her Lord. I celebrate with you this morning a rock strong enough to build your life on and a rock strong enough to build our church, our fellowship on, my dear friends. In the corporate world, every business needs to find ways to tell its story to the public. We can call that marketing if you want, or um, the various different ways of developing that storytelling take a lot of work, and companies spend tens of thousands, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars on this. If you put all of their marketing together, you know, it could be in, in the millions. And one of the most important things you do is develop your case statement, your value proposition. Why does your company matter? What do you provide that's unique? What promises do you make that you can fulfill to make people's lives better or make their business better? When you shrink it right down, you might have to boil that down to just a paragraph or maybe even shorter yet to just a simple couple of sentences. Companies call that their mission statement. Even businesses talk about their mission. What business are we in? And you need to force yourself to boil that down to just a sentence or two. And yet you got to make it shorter yet. You need a tagline. And that could be just a phrase like DuPont's, for instance, DuPont's tagline. You know what it is? Nobody knows. Better living through chemistry. Not bad. Isn't that, isn't that good? I remembered it. I will always remember it. It has stuck in my head because it's so good. I wonder how much money they had to pay to get some wordsmiths to boil down the crazy complexity of DuPont chemicals and boil it down into a phrase that just bozos here in the upper Midwest like me would remember, even though we're far away from Delaware. And even a tagline is not enough. You also need a little picture to tell your story. That little picture is called a logo. And companies work very, very hard on getting the best possible one they can. You all know what Amazons look like, an arrow. You all know what uh, FedEx looks like, two just, they don't call themselves Federated Express, that's too long. They smushed it down to get it short in your mouth for marketing purposes. So it's called FedEx. And if you are a, a digital design nerd, you might have noticed that the E and the X, when they're together, form an arrow going forward because they deliver stuff to you. So next time you have a truck pull up in front of your house that says FedEx, just look at that second word and you will see they've cleverly in their logo designed an arrow pointing forward. The Green Bay Packers, whom we will all be enjoying several hours from now, at least those of you who are Packer fans will be enjoying it. Those of you who are not Packer fans will be grinding your teeth in agony. Have a really cool logo. They've had it forever, since the 20s. It is just the letter G, but it's smushed into the shape of a football. It tells the story. It, it, uh, people have it on their clothing. Nike has, don't doesn't even have to put the word Nike. What is, what's Nike's logo look like? Just, just a little swoosh. 
And see, that tells you what they're going to do for your life. You might be slow and clumsy, but if you put their Air Jordans on your feet, you will become graceful and fast immediately. And even if you don't, you will look cool while you're being slow and clumsy. They, they, if you look at sports uniforms, there will just be a little swoosh, and everybody knows what that means. The company's heavy investment in storytelling through image is paying off. You know, we Christians have a logo too. Did you know that? And it's one of the greatest logos in corporate history. If I can, forgive me, Lord, if I can talk about the Christian faith and about the church as though it were a business. We've got an awesome logo because it is such a great storytelling vehicle. Logos really do their job when they help you tell your enterprise's story. So what's our logo? The cross. It tells the story of how you and God went from enemies to being friends. The crucified Christ on his cross tells the story of what had to be spent in order to buy you back and dig you out of the trouble you were in, haul you out of the pit you were in. The cross is the place of Jesus' death, but it is an empty cross because he's alive. But get this, there's even more. Just think of this. It's so simple. It's awesome. This is the cross. And Sometimes I will make the sign of the cross if I say the invocation. Just about every church service ends with me. I'm not playing air guitar. I'm playing air cross with you. I will draw one in the air to float out and land on you so that you can carry it around with you wherever you're going. And it consists of just two things. There is a vertical piece and a horizontal piece. Do you ever think of how brilliant that is? as a church marketing tool. Let's just talk totally business nerdy right now. It's brilliant because Christianity has a vertical component and a horizontal component at the heart of its value to you. The vertical component means the day you become a Christian, you enter into a whole new set of relationships because you are not saved in a vacuum. You are saved in a world full of people in God's world. The first piece is the vertical piece. When you are saved, you are not just, it's not like God just peels off a few thousand dollars and gives you some and says, here you go, now it'll pay off your debts. Now run away, Sonny, and try to be a good boy. He is involved in a personal relationship with you. In fact, not only friends with you, although he is your friend, crazily enough, but you're bonded to him. You become part of the body of Christ so that the upright part of the cross logo reminds you I'm connected to God. And the horizontal one reminds you you are connected to other people. You are bonded to every other believer on the face of the earth. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Uh, part four, the final part, of love is all you need. I celebrated with you three weeks ago about loving God. That, that's actually appropriate. In fact, it's not only appropriate and fun, but you're supposed to. 
love the Lord your God with crazy love, all your heart, all your soul, all your spirit, all your strength. Boy, that's pretty much everything. All in for God. I love you, Lord. Three week, or two weeks ago, I talked to you about being at peace with yourself and deciding it's okay to like myself, warts and all. If Jesus can accept me, I can accept myself. And to try to banish self-loathing and self-hatred and uh, all of the depressions out of our heart and spirit and voice, words, and face that say, I must be trash. My life is worthless and hopeless. I'm a loser. Banish it all. The Lord thinks you have worth. You may think of yourself, I have worth. Last week, we talked about loving our neighbor and took, and one particular focus of it is loving your neighbor enough to share the gospel and also to helping your neighbor's physical surroundings in some kind of way. And we heard the thrilling story of what the um, Central Africa Medical Mission is doing in Zambia and Malawi last week. Today, the last of them I want to talk to you about loving the fellowship of believers. And I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and uh, kind of scan over 1 Peter chapter 2 with me. It is an incredible chapter in the Bible. It is possibly one of the 10 most significant chapters in the whole Bible, which is quite intense competition, because every sentence is like an essay. Every sentence is a cluster of powerful and important things that you need to know. And I want to home in on just one verse, but I want you to look at the context of it too, because it's all about the cross. The death and resurrection of Jesus from his cross and empty tomb to be given to you changes you and forms you into a set of relationships. The first of them is that Christ is like a stone and so are you. Think of, your, of him and us as stones. First Peter chapter 2, if you just glance at this, you maybe know this part already. Uh, but reread it every chance you get because it's so thrilling. Christ is a living stone, and we are living stones too, made alive by him, but now mortared together on top of him as our foundation. Just like you sang, sang your heart out about 10 minutes ago, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's you. You, your little piece of rock in your life is now setting right on top of Jesus, and he's strong enough and big enough to catch you when you are lowered into your grave someday. He can catch you. Build your hopes on him. But you are also mortared into place with other stones. You're not bricks of Jesus. Bricks all look the same, don't they? Everyone looks exactly like the other one. We're like, the church is like a building built out of fieldstone. And fieldstone, you know, is crazy irregular. The, the masons who build a fieldstone building have to do a lot of dry fitting and exercise a lot of care to mortar everything together. That's us. We're crazy different. We're all different shapes, sizes, colors, ages, uh, different levels of every last thing. We're good and bad at all different kinds of things. And God loves that crazy diversity, but he's mortaring us together. And you are part of a building, whether you know it or not, and whether you like it or not. And so my encouragement today is to take note of that building 
and to like it, to pay attention to it, because we're living stones. We're not frozen in mortar. It's a flexible living building, as it were. You're a royal priesthood. You're chosen, it says in verse 9. You're a holy nation. You belong to God, and you have a mission in life to make him look good in your world. Man, we could spend three hours just unpacking the paragraph starting in verse 9 because it's so important. Once you were not a people, it says in verse 10, you were born on the out outside looking in, but you've been rescued, not by your initiative, but from a God who loved you enough to reach over and pull you out. I will always be grateful to Gary Evans, our speaker last week. We were at a lake cottage with them once long ago when my kids were little, and my son Sam was so excited running in from the pier to tell his mom that he had seen a fish that he ran right off the pier and went right into the water uh, over his head, and Gary just reached over and pulled him right out by the by the uh, collar of his little shirt and set him back on the pier, and, and he just kept running. He didn't even notice he had a near-death experience. That is what God did to you. He reached down and pulled you out. And by the time you figured out what was going on, you already were saved, and your feet were on solid ground. This is so amazing. Uh, you are aliens and strangers in the world. You live among the pagans. So this is, you even have a relationship with the non-believing people around you. God expects you and your behaviors, even when you're not talking explicitly about your faith, even when you're not trying to get them to come to church with you or believe what you believe, even if it's just in the workplace, there should be something different about the way you behave that makes your light shine. Maybe it's because you're a guy who will own up to a mistake he has made and not blame somebody else, not make light of it, but just claim it. Yeah, you're right. I messed that up. I'll fix that. It's all, that's on me. Who says that in the business world today? Everybody's all about CYA, right? Blame somebody else. Maybe you're a woman who always delivers on her promises and will spend of herself to go the extra mile to deliver what she says she's going to do. And the unbelievers are watching because in time they will figure out that you're a Christian. They will know what you claim. But man, when you live your faith instead of only talking your faith, that is powerful. That makes your words believable. Live such good lives among the pagans that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he comes uh, to settle accounts. They will grudgingly have to admit, we had Christians among us and should have listened to their testimony. Uh, the next paragraph could be a, a whole, could spend half the day chewing on this because it's a difficult subject and it's a word. This paragraph now begins with a word that I can barely get past my teeth because I don't like it. I don't know if you've noticed this about me yet, but I like to be in control. Of course, who doesn't? I mean, don't you like getting your way? Of course you do. But some of us like getting our way a little more than others, and we have ways of managing our world to try to always 
deliver what's in our best interest. And so this word right here, the S word, is one that I have to force past my teeth because I don't like it because it means letting go. And I don't like to let go because if I let go, I can't control it. But here's the word. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority. Uh, so that talks about our relationship with the structures in which we live. My boss, my governor, my mayor, the alderman or alderwoman, my president, my governor, and all of the bureaucracy that have power and authority over me. Instead of fighting against that, my, the Christian in me says, be a cooperative person in the world in which you've been planted. Uh, and don't be a destroyer. Be somebody who's a builder. And you only can do that when somebody has leadership over you to let them lead. And man, that's hard, isn't it? Live, verse 16 has a paradox. You know, I'm always going on and on about the paradoxes in Scripture. Here's one for you. Look at verse 16. Take just a second and read it. Read it right now to yourself. What a contradiction. Live as free people, live as slaves. What? My, my NIV version says live as servants of God, but that's, that's kind of a tame word. The Greek word doulos most of the time means a slave. Now, real, realize the slavery back then was not the brutal race-based slavery that unfortunately tormented and stained the United States for centuries. Slavery, slaves back then not only were allowed to be educated, they were often paid to be educated because they essentially were employees in their owner's business. They could accumulate, they could have an education, they could accumulate wealth. They were encouraged to have a side hustle and make money and encouraged to buy their freedom when they could. In fact, slavery was a way actually for people who were head over heels in debt to basically declare bankruptcy surrender their freedom, work for somebody until their debt could be worked off. And in, in other words, it almost became a way to get out of a hole rather than putting you in a hole. Still, you had no freedom as a slave. And the Roman Empire was full of them. There maybe were 60 million slaves. You know, the New Testament does not call on Christians to overthrow the Roman Empire and establish a new, better world order. Christians ended up doing that anyway over the centuries and slowly have built better and better and more democratic and sensitive types of government. The government we have today is still not there and it never will be. But the point is to see yourself as a free slave. Now you're going to say that is not possible. And I'm going to say, yep, enjoy the buzz, the contradiction. You belong to God. Heart, soul, mind, body, everything. But he lets you, he gives you freedom of choice of how you are going to express your servanthood to God. Now, isn't that a, an interesting, like, do you feel a little buzzing in your head right now? I'm a free slave. Hmm, what does that mean? Figure that out. All right, now here's the kicker. Verse 17 has four uh, verbs in it that are all imperatives, or that's... English nerd talk for commands. Show, love, fear, honor. Four imperatives, four commands. And 
uh, I could talk to you for a half hour apiece on each one of those. We're going to skip numbers one, three, and four. Another day, we'll talk about those. I'd like to just laser in on the way this paragraph ends. Love, now it depends on which uh, translation you have. This verse is translated a number of different ways. Love the family of believers. Love the brotherhood of believers. Love the fellowship of believers. It's talking about the network of your fellow believers. And he just gives a command, love them. And in the fourth, uh, all you need is love in the series. This is what I would like you to roll around in your head a little bit today and then take with you and ponder during the week. What does this mean to love the family of believers? While you're thinking about that, I'd like to ask you an even tougher question. Why do we need to be told this? Why, is, why can't God just assume this happens all by itself? Because <laughs> we're too busy loving ourselves. That's why. This is learned behavior. This is a choice you need to make in your mind. Because religion can be, in people's lives, just another hobby. This can be like a religion restaurant where people just go to get something they want. You don't go to restaurants for the sweet privilege and joy of talking to the people at the next table, do you? You do not, unless you, by pure coincidence, stumble into seeing some friends of yours in the same joint. You don't go to talk to the people at the table next to you. In fact, it's considered bad form if you appear to be listening to their conversation. You're supposed to pretend that they can talk about all their gossipy stuff and it stays right there, right? You're not supposed to be hearing her complain about her ex. You're supposed to concentrate on your own business, right? You don't go to a restaurant to really uh, dial in to how the waitstaff that you happen to have at your table is doing this week, how their investments are going on. You have, it's in, totally inappropriate, right? You're not supposed to be talking about the financial situation of your waiter or waitress, are you? You go there for one reason. You want to load up on food because you're hungry and you're hoping it better be good. And it also better be perfect because if, if your experience isn't perfect, you got so many choices, you're never going back there, right? I am a restaurant perfectionist, and you probably, I got a hunch, many, maybe most of you, maybe all of you are too. If you go someplace and the food is terrible, why would I go back there? That piece of meat was so dry, I had to cut it in really tiny pieces and chew twice as long as I normally would have. I will never go back there. I can't trust them to make food I enjoy. I want to be pampered and spoiled, and I, I want to be transported into heaven with the food. The waitstaff better be timely. If you ignore me, if I feel ignored or disrespected or blown off or like you're just, I'm an afterthought, then I don't want to go back there because your, your job is to pamper me and make me feel like a king for, for an evening, right? I got other places to go in this town. If you're going to give me a bad experience, I don't have to go back to you. See, that's, that kind of thinking is poisonous when you think about our gatherings together. And I fear that Satan will whisper at you to view your relationship with your fellow believers as though this was a gas station or a restaurant where you can be a perfectionist. 
We all look for the lowest possible price for our gas stations. We only go to the places that have stuff we want and we favor the ones that in the store, they've got the kind of stuff that you need in addition to gasoline. And we get, we get our favorites and then we go to our favorites. Same with restaurants. We have our faves and uh, that's where we go. What a horrible mess if that's how you view your church life. Like it's just a place to fill up. And then on the way home, we'll critique it. Well, what'd you think of that? Well, the music was blah, blah, blah. Well, did you get anything out of the message? No, it was boring. Same old, same old. I'm tired of that liturgy. I'm a liturgy hater. Why don't they do this? This is the style of music I like. I don't like this style. I like this style. I don't like that woman singing. I like this woman singing. I don't like solos at all. I like it when the band sings. I don't like a band at all. I think the organ should be the only thing in a church. For Pete's sake, this is a church, not a nightclub. And it goes on and on and on. And finally, what is that? It's all about me. And instead of saying, well, what did I get out of it today? How about this? What did God get out of your presence here today? Did you come to bring something or are you just trawling around hoping to take something? And choosing to love the brotherhood and sisterhood is an important part of your time here. Notice the people around you. Look in their faces. Ask them about their lives. Find out their name. And if you forget, as I do every week, and it's getting harder as my um, as the memory capacity in my brain each day is slowly downgraded. My RAM is going down every day. And files are being deleted involuntarily. Just wait, young'uns. It's, your day is coming, and this will be you too. So I need to keep asking when I forget. This is not only we come to church, not only for this time where you drink in the splendid news of the gospel, but it's this time too where we work on our bonds with each other. Because people around you have something you need in your life. They can't give it to you if you don't look in their face. The people around you are part of God's answers to your prayers for stuff in your life. He vastly prefers to do it through other people rather than just working a miracle. God is insanely focused on using people to help people. And he would rather do it that way than any other. But you've got to let, let him do his thing. Let that happen. Other people sitting around you need something that you have. It might be a little time. It might be a smile. It might be your eyes. It might be a story. It might be an insight that one of the older ones can share with a younger one. But you've got something that the people around you need. Love the fellowship. Love it. Love it with all your heart. Don't critique it. Those of us who work on trying to organize and present an experience for you each week, we know sometimes we suck. We know. You don't have to tell us. We know. 
We know sometimes we bore you by saying the same things in the same way. We know. Help us, though. In the times we get it right, say something to encourage. Instead of criticizing what's lame, encourage and praise what's working. Or come with ideas. Better yet, volunteer to help make something happen that you think would make this a cooler fellowship. You will get, just as if you've been married a while, you have figured out that it's much easier to get the behavior in your spouse that you want by praising and encouraging what they do right rather than nagging them for what they do bad. Is that not true? Is that not true? People who've been married for 30 years? Yep, it's true. And you can help lift the place up by saying something. You can take the moments. You, you don't, don't roll in at one minute before church, slide into your pew and talk to nobody. That's what I do at the gas station. I have no interest. Not to be, I'm not cruel. Am I, am I a cruel person? But I have no interest in a relationship with a lady at the next pump. I, get your gas lady. I'll stay out of your way. Do your thing and... And I hope you got enough money to pay for it and buy. I don't, I don't want to talk to you. I don't need to know what's going on in your day. But I do care about you. Because we are part of a bond of fellowship. I need you in some ways, and you need me. But we cannot accomplish that mission by being in too big a hurry. Slow down. Look in somebody's face. Know their name. Say something encouraging. Listen to their stories. Pray for them. And then during the week, as you have opportunity, you can maybe use your network to help meet a need that they may have. Appreciate what this does for us. Having a posse means there's somebody who will hold you accountable when you are acting stupid. And you will. You have already had stretches in your life where you're acting stupid and you're going to have them again we can smack each other around a little bit and say, hey, whoa, you're off base there. This is, you're in the wrong here. This is how you need to frame this issue and think about it. You're the, the struggle to survive is exhausting. And your posse, your team here, your fellowship, can help to rebuild your sense of being worth something and help you see yourself as you truly are, one of God's all-stars. Learning how to serve one another is how God lifts people up. Grabbing for more attention, money, and power empties you, hollows you out like a rotting tree. Getting on your knees to meet someone else's needs is how God lifts you up. And man, what an awesome way to do it is through our fellowship. Love that fellowship of believers. And I'd like to close with asking you to do something, to act out something I've wanted to try for a while. Uh, a lot of churches have the custom, especially the ones who use a liturgy, have the custom of having what they call the passing of the peace. Raise your hand if you've heard of that or seen that or been at a church that ever did that. Uh, I, I, I really like the general concept. In fact, that's why we have our name exchange at the beginning of worship, because I really 
would like you to be aware of the people around you and know their names and have already started talking to them at the beginning. But they'll often do it right in the middle of the service. And I, it always seemed like an interruption of the flow to me. I never got comfortable with it. I liked it enough to ever do it here. Um, so we do ours at the beginning. But I, uh, I read an article of a guy who said, at our church, we don't say peace be with you. Now, now peace be with you is a perfectly fine phrase, isn't it? it I would like you to have peace. But see, if when I say peace be with you, there's, there's no responsibility on me. Because I'm either wishing, hey, will you get over what's bugging you and be at peace? Or I'm saying, God, um, my sister here needs some help. God, why don't you fix her? But then I walk away. Also, peace be with you is a totally stilted phrase. You never would say that to another human being if you weren't in church. Would you? I don't think any one of you has ever said to another human being, peace be with you. Have you? Have you ever done that? I bet not. It seems, it just feels a little churchy phony to me. So this guy wrote an article and said, here's what we say at our church, and I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to close now um, by doing this. And that is to stand up and look at the people around you one by one and get close enough to them to be close to their faith, face and say this. I am your friend. Do it now. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.